Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Stephanie Greenwald, and I'm excited to be here with my co-host, Bob Kaler. Bob, tell us how you're doing today. We're doing great out here in Colorado. Uh, it's a good place to be sheltered, actually. <laughs> as, uh, we can look at Pikes Peak from our front windows, and and uh, the weather here in Colorado has been phenomenal. We actually have spring, although you cannot rule out the possibility of the mid-May or early June snowstorm at any given time. But right now, it's it's looking pretty good. We're excited about the possibility of summer arriving and perhaps things opening up a little bit too. Oh yes, there is nothing like the Colorado fresh air. I just love being in Colorado. In fact, I remember being there in May about 13 years ago and we caught one of those mid-May snowstorms while we were there. It was pretty crazy. I've been here 10 years and twice on Mother's Day we've had to cancel church because of snow. Really? So, oh yeah. my goodness. That yeah, it didn't crazy. happen this year, of course, because we're already canceled. But uh, <laughs> we, we, sometimes, uh, we sometimes do have that. Oh, I believe it. Well, here in Oklahoma City today, the sun is shining, and we are always glad when that is happening in Oklahoma City. So I am excited about our special guest today. Bob, you want to tell us a little bit about him? Yes, we have Keith Boyette, who is the president of the Wesleyan Covenant Association with us today. And uh, Keith and Keith and I actually went to seminary together back in 1991. Uh, wow. We started seminary at Asbury. I remember Keith. He probably doesn't remember me. Uh, <laughs> I was a student associate pastor, so I was coming in and out of campus all the time. But I don't know if you remember this, Keith. The very first chapel we had in 1991 was an orientation for new students. Jerry Mercer was the dean of the chapel. I don't know if you remember what he talked about that day. I remember it very clearly. The title of his sermon was The Ordeal. And mm -hmm. basically he came out and he looked at all of us and he said, if God called you into ministry, he didn't do you a favor. And here we are sitting with our new books and all of our stuff ready to go. And it turns out that ministry is kind of an ordeal. And certainly we've been going through an ordeal uh, as we've been waiting for general conference and the birth of a new Methodist movement. So welcome, Keith. I hope you're doing well and uh, the most traveled man in Methodism, I think, right now. <laughs> well, hello, Bob and Stephanie. It's great to be with you today. And, and Bob, you know, they say that most people don't remember your sermon more than about 10 minutes after it's over. So the fact that you remembered Jerry Mercer's <laughs> sermon uh, all those years ago is, it must have been a fantastic message. But you were right. Uh, ministry is an ordeal. Life is often an ordeal. And certainly the journey we've been on in the United Methodist Church has been an ordeal. But the good news is we've got God with us as we move through these ordeals. True enough. Yeah, that was kind of the point of his sermon, too. He said, just look at the prophets, and they all dealt with stuff. And so we thought this was going to be an easy, clear sailing as we record this. Uh, this would have been, uh, I think, the next to last day of the general conference, uh, yeah. as, as it was planned on May 14th, as we're recording this. So, um, so the ordeal continues. Uh, what What is the latest on General Conference? What can you tell us? Well, I wish that we were able to share some definitive news, but as we're recording uh, this uh, podcast, we do not have confirmation on the dates uh, for a rescheduled General Conference. Of course, it was postponed because of COVID-19, 
And that was completely understandable. It was the right decision to make. Uh, no way could people have traveled from all over the world. I understand that the Commission on General Conference is to meet this coming Saturday, May the 16th, to kind of date it for our listeners. So it may well be that there will be an announcement of when uh, a definitive date will be given. But uh, at this point, we don't have one. There has been some preliminary indication that uh, a rescheduled general conference might meet from August the 31st to September the 10th or something like that in 2021. So unfortunately, we are in a holding pattern uh, circling the airport waiting for permission to land. <laughs> yeah. well, there's nothing like being in limbo with that, is there? That's right. It's an unnerving time. But I would say that, um, you know, I think most people are so focused on responding to uh, COVID-19 in their communities and the way in which it's impacting their church, that, um, that while people want to get there, they certainly have plenty on their plate right now to be dealing with. That is so very true. So Keith, related to General Conference, um, of course, have jurisdictional and central conferences to consider. Uh, also the election of bi bishops, both here in the US and around the world. So lots of things you know, that we're kind of in limbo about right now. How does the postponement of General Conference affect those conferences and their decision-making? Well, of course, it affects an incredible number of things. If it just, if I could, before I jump to to jurisdictional conferences, mm -hmm. I mean, there's issues even with general conference as to who will be the delegates at general mm -hmm. conference. I mean, we we knew the 862 delegates that were elected to the 2020 general conference, um, uh, but there's a provision in the in the discipline of the United Methodist Church that says that delegates cannot be elected more than two years before mm -hmm. general conference. So if elections were held before 2019, it may well be that some elections have to be redone. Um, and nobody really knows the outcome of that yet. Uh, and of course, there have been delegates that unfortunately some things have happened in their lives that are going to preclude them from serving. Mm -hmm. um, so the, who the delegates are is, is, is going to be is, is a subject to adjustment. Um, the discipline provides that legislation can be filed up until about nine months before general conference. Well, mm -hmm. with the postponement of general conference and a new convening date, does that open up the window for uh, mm. legislation to be filed afresh and anew? Some people, you know, are, are arguing that that might be the case. How will that impact what mm -hmm. is going on? Uh, there is the, um, the issue of how does the church function when the general conference has not been held? We have um, uh, persons who serve for terms of office in different offices mm -hmm. that were supposed to end their service at the 2020 General Conference, like the members of the Judicial Council. The discipline provides they continue to serve until their successors are elected, 
Mm. Uh, I have a friend who serves on the Judicial Council who has served for 16 years. He's asking me, does this mean that I've been sentenced to purgatory or something? <laughs> I'm never going to get off the Judicial Council. He was looking forward to retirement, as it were. Um, <laughs> and, and then you have the church budget. We, we adopt a quadrennial budget, mm -hmm. which will end December the 31st of 2020. What happens after that date with respect to the continued funding of mm. our general boards and agencies? Uh, what's the level of apportionments to be paid? How, how are annual conferences to determine what their apportionments are gonna be? All of those are issues up in the air. Um, knowing that we are a uh, litigious people by definition, we, we love to uh, fight over things. I won't be surprised if there aren't an amazing number of, uh, of uh, matters that come before the Judicial Council to try mm -hmm. to figure this out. But the, the postponement of, of General Conference impacts the, um, not only the flow of the General Church, but as you were just referencing, it impacts the flow of uh, jurisdictional or central conferences and even annual conferences. Mm -hmm. um, you know, jurisdictional and central conferences are the large regional groupings of churches. Jurisdictional conferences here in the United States, there's five jurisdictions, and then central conferences are the collections of annual conferences outside the United States. Mm -hmm. And they have a regular schedule of meeting. Jurisdictional conferences usually occur in July following the meeting of the General Conference in May. Mm -hmm. um, so until recently, it was uncertain were the jurisdictional conferences still going to meet at their scheduled time. Well, now we know the Council of Bishops has decided to postpone those jurisdictional conferences. They have not yet announced when they will be rescheduled. And, and, and central conferences likewise have, have, well, some of them have not yet been postponed because they occur as much as a year after general conference. Mm -hmm. But at both jurisdictional conferences and central conferences, one of the primary matters of business is the election of bishops to fill vacancies mm -hmm. and the retirement of bishops is often a matter that the, the conferences have to vote on. And if they don't meet to vote, can these bishops retire? <laughs> and, and beyond that, there's a mandatory retirement age mm -hmm. for bishops. So what happens if a bishop reaches that mandatory retirement age, but the jurisdictional or central conference has not voted to retire them. Um, typically, bishops start serving in their new Episcopal areas on September the 1st, following a general conference. Um, and will there be changes in assignment of bishops mm -hmm. uh, come September the 1st? And uh, if bishops somehow figure out a way to retire and there are no new elections of bishops, um, who serves in those annual conference or those Episcopal areas where bishops have retired? Um, uh, the Council of Bishops can approve an interim bishop from a retired bishop. But you can see there's just a host of issues that 
uh, that the church has never been prepared for. Uh, and, and I mean, it's many people have said, you know, no pastor has ever pastored a church in a pandemic. Well, the United Methodist Church has not tried to function in a pandemic before. Mm-hmm. I wonder about that too, Keith, because like our annual conference is moving to an online annual conference. It remains to be seen what that looks like. Uh, cuts it from four days to two days. I've always said we do a 45 minute meeting in four days, but, <laughs> but it cuts it down, but they are doing it in some way. And I, I've heard that question a lot. Why can't we pivot to doing these conferences online to some degree? Can you talk a little bit about why that's not really possible or is it possible? Well, we're, we are Methodist for a reason. <laughs> we are very methodical. And one of the things that has happened that has moved us from a movement to an institution is that we have, we have uh, codified our methods. And so our constitution of a ch- as a church, our book of discipline does not give permission for uh, a a general conference to meet virtually. Hmm. The rules of the general conference don't make provision for a electronic or virtual meeting of the general conference. Uh, And and so there's lots of hurdles that would have to be overcome um, in order to do a a virtual general conference. You can tell even here in the United States, we've had a, a few glitches as we've been doing this with internet freezing up. And we have, we have amazing technology here in the United States. But I'm often in communication with folks in Africa, in Asia, in, in Europe. And in some of those places, they don't have the technical capabilities to do this. Uh, virtually. So there's there's just lots of things that have not yet been figured out there. Um, I'm aware that, for example, I think I read recently that the Presbyterian Church is going to have their general uh, meeting, their general Presbytery meeting, virtually. But they're just in the United States. They're not a global denomination. Uh, so So it creates all kinds of complications for us. Yeah, and of course, that that translates down to the annual conference level, which is where most of us are, are most familiar. And a lot of us are waiting for annual conferences to make decisions about uh, the protocol and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I would assume that uh, the annual conference schedule changes too, because normally that would happen in the summer. But if that happens before the general conference in 2021, uh, does that mean that annual conferences likely won't be able to make decisions based on if the protocol passes at general conference? They won't be able to make decisions until 2022. Is that accurate? Or where do annual conferences fit into all of this, too? Because that's the one probably most of us are concerned about. Sure. Well, typically, most annual conferences in the United States meet in May and June of each year. And so we had the potential that general conference concluding, supposed to conclude tomorrow, that the first annual conference would have met in about 10 days. And if the protocol had been adopted, 
that annual conference 10 days later might have had to deal with some aspects of the protocol. The reality now is all of the annual conferences in the United States have been postponed. Not one of them will occur uh, live on the dates that they were supposed to occur. As you mentioned, Mountain Sky has said, okay, we're gonna do ours virtually and a handful of annual conferences are going to attempt that. Some have actually divided this year's annual conference into two seasons. They're going to do one virtual annual conference to handle business. And then they're gonna convene at another time to do the kind of um, worship experiences like memorial services and ordination and all of that at another time. And then other annual conferences have put off the annual conference meeting until sometime this fall. Uh, if general conference doesn't occur until August, September of 2021, there's the possibility that an annual conference will meet in 2020 and again in 2021 before the general conference meets. So two annual conference seasons. Um, and, and if general conference is held in August, September 2021, and the next regularly scheduled annual conferences are May, June of 2022, you're right, they may not meet to vote on anything that General Conference adopts in the form of the protocol until May, June of 2022. However, uh, some annual conferences were planning to hold special annual conferences to deal specifically with the issues raised by the protocol if it was adopted. And so there's the possibility that some annual conferences may choose to hold a special annual conference in the immediate aftermath of the general conference in 2021 so that they would act on it before their 2022 annual conference. But the bottom line is nobody can vote on the protocol and what it, its implications are for annual conferences or local churches until the legislation is adopted. Mm -hmm. So some people have written to me saying, I hear my annual conference is gonna take a vote on alignment before the general conference meets. Well, they can do that, but it's ineffective. Nice. And one annual conference can't bind the next annual conference. So they'll still have to take a vote after the protocol is adopted. And, and we remain confident that it's gonna be adopted. Well, um, that kind of leads us into our next question here, Keith, because as we're moving towards, as we were moving towards the originally scheduled 2020 General Conference, it really looked like the Protocol for Reconciliation and Grace through separation had a lot of support, uh, but there were also some potential amendments being proposed. So I'm sure our listeners are anxious to hear what is the current status of the protocol and its potential amendments, even though we're, we're pushing it off, we're looking down the road a little bit further, but tell us, tell us that current status of the protocol now. Sure. Um, the protocol legislation is properly pending before general conference. It, it was adopted by several annual conferences as a petition to general conference. So the legislation is teed up for whenever the general conference does end up occurring. Um, but, but you're right, there were, there were some amendments that people were 
looking at before general conference was postponed, the ones that mo had most frequently been mentioned were ones that were coming from our brothers and sisters in Africa. Mm -hmm. But uh, even with the postponement of general conference, that is going to necessitate some changes to the protocol legislation. There's a timeline in the legislation that was premised upon general conference meeting in May. Mm -hmm. And if it's put off, you don't necessarily just move everything back um, and run from the new dates. In fact, I mean, they're not set in terms of days. They're set by reference to specific calendar dates. Mm -hmm. So there undoubtedly will be some amendments there. Um, we all know that um, what we're going through is impacting the, the United Methodist Church at many levels, uh, mm -hmm. organizationally, functionally, financially. So it won't be surprising if some people don't propose amendments or seek amendments there. Um, I can tell you that the, the 16 signatories who signed the protocol, uh, which we've referred to as the mediation team, uh, has met since uh, the, the postponement of General Conference. And um, all 16 members of that uh, mediation team continued to uh, communicate their support mm -hmm. for the protocol. And interestingly, on May the 5th, um, when General Conference was supposed to have convened, um, all of the major advocacy groups either held a public event or issued some kind of an article or statement. Uh, and encouragingly, all of them indicated that they were still committed to the protocol and preparing uh, for the eventual amicable separation of the United Methodist Church. So, um, so that's why uh, I said I think people are still optimistic. Now, I would very quickly say that I just got off uh, the phone with a, a religious uh, news reporter before us doing this, and she was saying, you know, I would be interviewing you in uh, Minneapolis right now, but here we are on the phone, and I hear some people are are thinking that maybe this pause will allow, quote, cooler heads mm -hmm. to prevail and that maybe the protocol won't be necessary. And I said, uh, if there are those people, they're living in la-la land. <laughs> you know, COVID-19 doesn't make an irreconcilable conflict go away. And all of the issues that gave rise to the protocol and the legislation uh, still are in full force of effect. And what I would say is most people are now dealing with hope deferred and delayed. They were eagerly looking forward to moving into new seasons of ministry mm -hmm. with the conflict behind us. Mm -hmm. Well, such a good word. And, you know, as we think about being in this sort of interim place that we're in right now, and, and you have done such a great job of telling us what that looks like and all the different decisions that have to be made during this time. But really, we've been given this time to for a purpose, to do something with it. So can you tell us how the WCA plans to use this kind of extended time to encourage uh, excitement about the movement? Sure. 
Well, you know, um, journeying uh, with the WCA has been one of the most uh, invigorating, exciting, challenging chapters of my personal life. Never have I been involved with an organization that has had to uh, juggle so many different scenarios. Mm -hmm. From our very beginning, we of course hoped that there would be a way to help the United Methodist Church to remain faithful to its historic teachings mm -hmm. and, um, and remain in alignment with, with the great swath of Christianity. Um, uh, but even in, in all of that, we were preparing for the possibility that some form of separation would have to come to the United Methodist Church. And so over the last two years, we have done a lot of uh, contingency planning, preparing <laughs> you know, for unknown circumstances. And, and we were literally ready. If General Conference 2020 had occurred as scheduled, we were ready to turn on the switch <laughs> for a new Methodist movement committed to the historic Christian faith and the Wesleyan tradition. Mm -hmm. um, what this has done has given us an opportunity to just continue that work of perfection and refinement. Hey, after all, we Methodists believe in a lifetime journey of perfection. So, you know, we're used to this sanctifying process right now. <laughs> we don't believe in purgatory, but since that we're, is there, true. Since that we're is. there, we might as well do something with it. <laughs> yeah, one of those historic questions is, do you believe that in this life you will be made perfect? And mm -hmm. we, we respond, yes. And, right. and so, yeah, we think that there's going to be perfection in this lifetime for this new movement as well. But we're, but we're uh, you know, so, so we're, we're continuing that work to, to do what is necessary to, to refine um, what this next movement will look like. But we're also uh, continuing to build uh, the membership of the WCA, those who are aligned uh, with the WCA. Um, in fact, um, when the protocol came out, the possibility that separation was going to occur became a reality for many people for the first time. Mm -hmm. I mean, many had thought about it before then, but there were lots who said, you know, we're going to do study commissions and talk about this forever. It will never come to fruition. But once the legislation was announced, people said, oh my gosh, this may, right, right, might really happen. Mm -hmm. And so there, there are traditionalists, people who would be aligned with the WCA theologically, who had not contemplated the possibility of separation. So as many people will know, in early March, we gathered with a group of traditional leaders not associated with the WCA in Atlanta to invite them to the table to talk about what was next. Because we want what happens to be as broadly based and inclusive of traditionalists as possible so that we don't fracture or fragment moving into the future. So this is giving us time to build those kinds of relationships. Um, then, then third, there is an educational process. Uh, I, I'm constantly amazed. I mean, I live this stuff uh, 24 hours a day, seven <laughs> days a week. So I think everybody is as keyed into what's happening as I am. And I'm constantly surprised that that is 
completely false. <laughs> you know, that, that there are still people, I still get emails from people daily that say, when did this happen to my church? Who knew? And, and, uh, and so they have to be educated, brought along, help understand what the dynamics are. What are our plans for the future? And, and uh, I mean, that happens right here in the United States. Imagine how it is for our brothers and sisters in international areas of the church. Um, uh, they're even uh, lag a little bit further behind in their access to it. So this time gives us an opportunity to um, prepare people, educate them, tell the story, uh, help them understand the plans that we're working on. Um, the, the WCA Council is continuing to work on its draft of the Book of Doctrines and Discipline. Um, it is largely completed, but it is a proposal. And our uh, council is interacting with literally hundreds of comments that have come in. Uh, and and um, uh, so it's refining that document and the proposals that are there. And our most recent uh, Global Legislative Assembly authorized the formation of six ministry task forces that are focusing on ministry priorities for the future, uh, accountable discipleship, uh, church multiplication, church revitalization, um, global missional partnerships, um, ministry to marginalized communities, um, youth and young adults. And those task forces are busy at work uh, developing uh, principles and uh, vision for the future and best practices that will play into the launch of this new denomination. So, so um, there's a lot of exciting work going on. Um, in some ways, this is a, a gift to us as a movement this season. Um, you know, someone has said, never waste a crisis. <laughs> well, <laughs> We're not, we're not wasting this time, um, and we're excited about what the future will mean for us as a movement. So that's a lot of upside to, to yeah. reframe this and think about that there is an opportunity for us to have a more fully formed idea rather than kind of going into this sort of still, still building the ship as we sail it, as it were. Uh, this gives us some time to do that. But I know there's also, I mean, we've talked about the ordeal, and for those who are in annual conferences where they are traditionalists, but they are the minority, a significant minority. That's certainly the case here. And I've been getting calls weekly from individuals, from churches, from, from people who are in small groups who are saying things like, I don't know if we can do this for another year. Uh, our church has really gone uh, in a direction we don't want to go. Uh, they call me and ask, where can we go? And there aren't a lot of options for them. Uh, you know, we've been hearing for people looking for traditional United Methodist churches here in places like the West, and there's not a lot of places we can send them. There's concerns about appointments because there's another appointment season now gonna, we're going to go through in 2021. Um, concerns about church closures. Uh, so all of those things are, are part of this mix. So while there's an opportunity, there's also a potential minefield here. What kinds of things might you say to, to those in that situation during this interim time? 
Sure. Well, um, we're doing a number of things to try to respond to those kinds of challenges. Um, uh, you're right, there are annual conferences that are decidedly, overwhelmingly progressive in their commitments. And um, traditional churches and traditionalists in those annual conferences seem to have few options, but um, they're also traditionalists who are attending churches that are very theologically diverse and they don't know which way their church may end up going, and they're, they're unnerved as well. So uh, among the things that we're trying to do to help people in that regard is um, help them see what their options are, what their alternatives are, um, help them get connected to faith communities uh, that are Methodist in their region. Uh, you know, one of the one of the impacts of the COVID-19 response is that no churches are meeting physically, which means that everybody is online. And, and so um, we're helping connect people to uh, traditional churches, churches that are theologically traditional, so that they can experience online worship services and sermons and get connected. Uh, one of the things that um, we'll be rolling out, it may be out by the time this podcast airs, is uh, a place on our website where churches that affirm the WCA's a statement on biblical authority, faith, and moral principles can be listed with their website addresses and contact information so that people can look at the possibility of connecting with them digitally, online, virtually, or even explore. There's, there's going to be a great sorting that will occur in many ways. I'm aware of uh, several groups across the nation that have begun to hold meetings of parts of their church, of the church membership, that know that they're theologically traditional and will not be continuing with their congregation once it makes a choice. And they're beginning to meet as a, as a group within the group, basically, uh, to build community and to prepare. Um, I don't know what word to use to describe, uh, you know, these, some of these folks. Uh, in one way, I feel like they're, they're almost refugees, you know, they're <laughs> exiles. They're looking for Remnant. a place to land. What's that? Remnant. Remnant, they're the remnant, yeah. And, uh, and of course, one of the things we're excited about is the possibility of planting new churches in communities where there is no witness to the historic Christian faith and the Methodist tradition. We're gearing up for that. So I would say uh, we're, we're carefully monitoring the actions of annual conferences as, it, as they relate to traditional churches. Um, we're trying to help lay leadership in those churches respond when there is uh, a disconnect in the kind of appointment that's being made with perhaps a pastor proposed for assignment that is not theologically aligned with the congregation. We're also monitoring situations where churches are, are being proposed for closure. Um, now, sometimes the closure of a church is warranted because of the life cycle of a church. But 
sometimes people perceive that a church is being closed, not for good reasons, and because they believe an annual conference is seeking to take the financial value in that church. And we're monitoring those situations as well and trying to give counsel to leaders um, as, how, as to how they can respond in each of those situations. So that, yeah, there are, there are downsides. Um, and and uh, we want to maintain very close uh, connections with our constituency so that we can speak into those situations. This is a time where people need to know what their rights are, basically, mm -hmm. under the discipline. That is so true. And it's so encouraging for our listeners to hear that the WCA is making effort to connect those of us who uh, value that traditional Wesleyan background um, so that we can we can have a community even when we can't be all together. So I want to play the what if game with you, Keith, for just a moment. So let's just assume that we actually do make it to uh, 2021 with no further delays, general conference meets, and let's just say it passes the protocol. So tell us if that all happens, what would be the next step for the WCA, then for annual conferences, then for, for local churches? What's the next step? Sure. Well, um, when the protocol passes at, at, at general conference, uh, we will immediately launch the new denomination. Uh, everything will have been in readiness for that. The, the legal work will have been done and literally we'll turn on the light switch <laughs> that day and be in business, okay? Um, so then the decision will be in the hands of annual conferences in the United States and around the world and in the hands of local churches. Um, under the protocol legislation in the United States, local churches can immediately move to a, an alignment vote on whether they want to separate from the United Methodist Church to join a new Methodist denomination. And um, those churches will be able to begin the process to take those votes. Um, in some places, churches may choose to wait until their annual conference meets. Uh, there are some annual conferences that uh, leaders of, of uh, our regional chapters believe may vote as an annual conference to separate and align, mm -hmm. but those votes won't be able to occur until the annual conference meets. And so churches in those annual conferences may delay taking a church vote because if the annual conference votes to align, they won't have to take a vote. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I fully expect that within that period of uh, assuming general conference occurred in September of 2021, that from then until through through 2022, the um, the process of alignment would begin to occur. Now, the protocol legislation provided for an extended period for people to make decisions, so that people didn't have to make decisions immediately if they didn't want to. Um, it ran through. Um, December 31st of 2025. I don't know what the, whether that date will be changed or not in what is ultimately adopted, mm -hmm. but um, part of what 
what we have uh, designed is a transitional process so that um, churches can join this new denomination, new church, uh, in its transitional stage, become part of it, subject to a transitional discipline, and yet be um, involved in determining what the actual doctrines and discipline will be at a convening conference. Um, and so those churches and conferences that make a decision uh, sooner rather than later will have that opportunity to be part of a convening conference uh, and, and actually make the determinations of, of the structure and form of that new denomination in its, in its uh, post-convening conference form. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you anticipate that convening conference happening then uh, immediately after uh, general conference or probably sometime early 2022? Yeah, it's probably gonna be in 2022 because we have to allow time for those churches to make decisions to join mm -hmm. um, and for those conferences. Um, it's probably unlikely to occur until after annual conference season in 2022. So uh, we haven't said anything yet, but um, my thinking is it would probably be in the fall of 2022. But I want to underscore churches will and, and, and uh, conferences will have the ability to go ahead and move out of the United Methodist Church, the post-separation UMC, into this new traditional church on a transitional basis, which for many of them, that, that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Get me out of a broken system that is um, not following its discipline. Get me out of a system that may change its core teachings and ethical practices, mm -hmm. and get me into a system that I'm theologically and ethically aligned with. And um, this transitional process will enable that. And then, then people can be part of envisioning and dreaming an exciting new future. Lots of stuff to think about, lots of stuff to do. And uh, we're grateful for this gift of time. As we wrap up, Keith, um, what is your hope for this new Methodism? Now, I've heard you say it before because we've talked about this a lot, that you're, one of your major hopes is that the first thing you'll be able to do is take a long vacation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. People, people say, what are you going to be doing in this new church? And I say, I'm going to take a very, very long uh, vacation. Um, you know, the, the, there's few things you can give yourself into life where you don't um, have your self-interest dictate the kinds of decisions that are made. I'm not angling for a future position. I don't look to be a leader in this new denomination. My role is to get people out of Egypt to the promised land. I'm not, I'm not making any analogies there. I'm not saying, you know, that I'm a Moses figure or anything like that. All I'm saying is I'm a transitional leader, okay? The WCA uh, isn't interested in self-perpetuation, you know? We have a sunset provision, basically. <laughs> We're going to go out of existence once we've completed our mission. Isn't that a great thing? <laughs> you know, so so the the joy of being part of laying the foundation for a vital, vibrant 
uh, movement of God in the 21st century is so exciting. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, this isn't just something for me or for the council of the WCA or even for the regional chapter leaders. This is something that every Methodist who has this vision is a part of. And, and we live in a unique time. I mean, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that we have been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. And this gives uh, our people an opportunity to address things that we might never have gotten to address if the United Methodist Church had hobbled along <laughs> in perpetuity. So, you know, my, my, my word of hope is there are bright days on the horizon. God is uh, unleashing uh, a, a new movement. The Holy Spirit is being poured out upon us. And uh, we have an opportunity to be uh, his hands and feet, um, to, to capture uh, and, and see come to fruition uh, what Wesley envisioned, a movement that is global, that is impacting um, communities and cultures all around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and seeing the, the kingdom of God mm -hmm. come to reality in our midst. So it's an exciting time. Wow. Well, Keith, that is just the most beautiful word to end on for us for our time together today. And I just want to say a special word of thanks to you for your leadership way you have guided us, the way that you are directing us. Your humble spirit is an inspiration to all of us, and we are so grateful for your leadership and your guidance in this, and thanks for being with us today. It's just been a, a pleasure to have you with us. It's been a great joy for me as well. Thank you all. It, it has it is an ordeal, but it's an ordeal with a with a with a definitive uh, goal and end. So we, we're thankful, Keith. Um, and uh, who knew all those years ago that we'd be in this situation? But it's a good thing. That's so right. We'll have to much. we'll have to thank Jerry Mercer for yes. his inspiring <laughs> words. At the beginning right. of Jerry, wherever you are, we give you. Yes, the thank you, Jerry. <laughs> he probably doesn't even remember preaching that sermon, but I remember it very well. That's great. Well, we want to remind you that. Um, uh, that we are on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, anywhere you get your podcasts. So if you would leave comments and questions, uh, particularly those, those comments, and give us a rating on your favorite uh, podcast platform that helps us get more views. Spread the word about this podcast, particularly for those who are interested in the WCA or who may be connected. You can send us your questions and comments directly at podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. That's our email, podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. Our next episode features the president of the WCA Council, Jeff Greenway. Chair of the WCA Council. Mm -hmm. What did I say? President. Oh, chair of the WCA Council. Sorry, Mr. President. <laughs> uh, Chair of the WCA Council, Jeff Greenway, will be sharing with us on distinctives of the new Methodist denomination. So, uh, so we look forward to that. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for joining us here on Holy Conversations, the WCA podcast. We'll see you next time.